What's up? This is Jeff Funk. You're listening to Behind the Decks. Hi guys, and thanks for joining me for another helping of Behind the Decks, a music event podcast series hosted by me, Freddy Cocker. Each pod, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond. We discuss all about their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. My special guest for this week's episode is another French producer. Like Funky District, he's also called Arthur, but goes by the name of Hollow. His records have influences across the board, from house to R&B and electro, but all of them have a soulful and melodic energy running through them. In this episode, we discuss Arthur's journey as a producer, the positives and negatives he's had within the music industry, trusting yourself, and a little-known mental health condition he lives with called derealization. Get yourself comfy, have a listen, as I go Behind the Decks with Hollow. Arthur, welcome to Behind the Decks, mate. Thanks so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. First off, how are you? How was Christmas? And were you able to enjoy it at all over in France or were you still in lockdown like us in the UK? Thanks for inviting me. I'm super glad to be here. My Christmas went well. It was with my my close family. We were six, as the French government previously said and asked us to be. But it went well. The Christmas energy was there. So that was fine. And I'm fresh uh, to start again this new year with some new music and some new stuff. So that was cool. That's what I love to hear, man. We've got a lot to get on with and your journey is such an interesting one. It's filled with lots of ups and downs and interesting points. So shall we just get on with it? Yeah, let's go. I'm more than ready. Let's start the pod as we always do on Behind the Decks, Arth, and talk about your journey as hollow. Now, before we do that, Why don't you tell me about how your love affair with music began? What were some of your favourite records growing up, perhaps your music idols and inspirations, and how you first got into producing and playing instruments? A lot ton of producers and musicians out there. My taste grew up with, and thanks to my parents, actually. They were really, really, really into music, more than a lot of parents out there, I think. So they introduced me to some kind of underground and strange music with some jazz records, even some house, French house music. And they really enjoyed to see me grow up on my side too, with my own music and my own taste. They are not the stereotypes of the young parents, but they like to stay informed on what's going on, what's released, and what's nowadays music that is playing amongst youth and young people. They like to stay kind of trendy, so we had a ton of conversation with my parents, and I think that like ton of my taste come from them and conversation with them and my generation i like trap music too i like rap i like what's been in electronic music and one of my huge inspiration would be even if that's kind of corny now the edm back in the days that's where i started making music so you know all the djs and yeah basically i remember the after movies after Moreland, and when i was like maybe 13 12 years old i was so hyped <laughs> about those those videos so that's a huge energy that is making your whole generation going in a direction and so obviously you're inspired by all these things and i think i'm just a product of my generation and I started like having my own taste and being deeper into music when I was maybe 17. 
And I uh, yeah, really started to make my journey like deeper and deeper without caring about what people are listening to. I feel that thanks to this journey nowadays, um, maybe less ashamed to be inspired by mainstream music and all that stuff than I was when I started making music. And I was really, yeah, I want to be underground. I want to be the arty guy that has taste that no one else has. And nowadays I'm really, really on the other side of that. And when it comes to your producer alias, where did you get the inspiration for the name Hollow? What does it mean to you? And maybe how you started getting into producing and performing instruments? At first, I was knowing that I had to copy other artists to be better. So I was really inspired by uh, the things I liked at this period. And that were close to the music I wanted to make. So there were people like Justice, Disclosure, EDM stuff too, like Galantis maybe. I still love what they're doing actually right now. And people like that. And when I grew up in my music journey, I was more interested in understanding and be inspired by people that work in the music industry stuff, like maybe mix engineer, uh, maybe music producer, but that are behind in the studio, like Max Martin and those type of people that are actually excellent producers, but that no one talks about. I recently invested in Mix with the Masters which is a platform where you get a ton of masterclass of gods of the mix engineering. And I feel that my inspiration, I don't have like a special artist that I'm inspired by. I'm more the type of guy that is inspired by singles or maybe two or three tracks from someone and then two or three tracks from someone else. I don't have like a real artist that in my mind is up on the pedestal. I'd like to put music in a pedestal sometimes singles in a pedestal but i don't have any artists like uh, like a lot and just on hollow itself what does that name mean and what's the story behind it i started with this name when i was maybe 14 15 that was just an aesthetic thing and that is still an aesthetic thing back in the days when i chose this name i wasn't even aware that hollow with 2l as a signification <laughs> so you kind of understand <laughs> how dumb i was when i was 13 14 but i kept this name till today and i think it's still aesthetic and i love this name and it's cool to like have to assume and i don't know keep this name even though you realize that that was maybe not a mistake because it's not like a something really edgy like but i like to keep the same self confidence as when i started and keep the same name even though i know today that it's a bit like it's a bit corny i think it's funny like that's nonsense there's really no meaning behind this name as you broke into the scene, mate, was there a moment where you felt like you accepted or belonged in it? Maybe it was a nice text message from a producer you admired, maybe a family member who said that they enjoyed your music, or maybe even a compliment from a fan. I'm really a homebody, someone that likes to be alone. And I'm a unique child, you know, my family, I was like the unique boy of the family and always grew up understanding that to be alone is accepting self-doubt, accepting every thoughts and every question you got when you're alone and when there's no noise around you and you can put in the same folder the question about your music and what you're doing is it actually good is it something great or am i wasting time and i grew up with those questions as a unique child alone in my bedroom so nowadays i feel like i'm able to judge by myself do i like this thing or do i what I'm doing right now obviously there is more nuance than that but that's the overall way I'm processing right now my feedbacks on music I'm really interested on in the feedbacks I'm doing myself to my music because music is first 
and above everything else for you. And you are the artist and you got to be aware, is your music great? I feel like if you like what you're doing, I think like that's the only way possible to be honest when making music. You got to like what you're doing as an artist and put what you like out. So at the beginning, I was, like I just said before in the past question, I was copying other artists because it's an easy process to be sure that what you're making is great. Because when you're copying and it's close to what you heard, like what you heard, you're sure that you made it great. And nowadays that I'm not trying to copy uh, Justice or Disclosure or Cosmos Midnight, I feel like it's really on my own taste. And I got a reference track, for example. When I'm making a track in a, a special style, I like to have a track from the same style that I like. And I think that sonically is actually impressing and try to be close to this track. I feel like I'm never close to it, honestly. But that's also, I'm going to be, uh, I think, the artist bias. I actually say à mon avis, which is a French word to say, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> That's funny. So, yeah, basically, my parents' feedback was not that great. And my friends' feedback was not that great, too, because they were always kind to me. So you can learn in the process that you can only trust yourself. And maybe the other producers, too, because they are honest with you and they are able to point special thing in your mix, in your production, in what you're doing that is not great technically. So that's the kind of feedback that I like. But yeah, I really learned to like my feedback and work with my feedback and my negativity that is coming from me most of the time because most of the time I don't like what I'm doing till I make something that I like and I'm not touching anything. So yeah, it's all about working with your negativity as, an, as a producer most of the time, I guess. And because I was the only one in my family and there were no entertainment, no things that I could escape with elsewhere. I was uh, at the beginning of my music journey already dealing with that. And when it comes to producing itself, what impact does that have on your mental health, Arthur? Is it, for example, escapism? Is it cathartic? Is it a way for you to express yourself? What can you tell me here? I got a huge problem with that, actually, because I don't find this as a something cathartic or a way to express myself. I'm more a guy that is making music because he sonically like what he's hearing and he find this really entertaining to work with noise and sounds and build like a chemist, but like an engineer. In fact, I'm more, uh, I like combining sounds and having fun with the sounds, but I never found a way to escape my feelings, express myself. What I mean by that is when I'm angry, I'm not capable of doing an angry song. Or when I'm sad, I'm not at ease with doing a sad song. I'm just doing what I want and sometimes feel like it's sad. Sometimes it feels like it's happy. Sometimes it feels more like deeper emotions. <laughs> just, it's not just sad or happy. You, you know what I mean? But, but I'm not in capacity. I can't deal with emotions and like lead them and just express myself and feel better after I make music. Uh, it's not a way for me to feel better. It's just a way for me to escape maybe my problem of the day and having a fun time in front of my computer. I'm just having fun, I think. And when it comes to DJing, when we spoke off air, you said that you hadn't done much of this and you're strictly an artist and a producer in this in the technical sense. Was there a reason for that? The first reason is that I'm not comfortable with doing TG sets since my discography is not that big. It's not that huge, you know, I got like three, four tracks that I really like from me. And I'm pretty, pretty sure actually I got one or two tracks I like from me. <laughs> so, cause I don't got that huge discography and I'm not comfortable with playing somebody else tracks 
like 70% of the time doing a DJ set. I'm just waiting for the right moment where I'd be able to have a ton of colors and a huge color palette of tracks and be able to do a great DJ set. And that's not something I'm really interested in for the moment, doing live performances, because I feel like in my music journey, it's not the right time. It's a question of timing. I feel like it will be off for me, comparing to who I am and what I'm going through to do DJ sets and live for the moment. I obviously going to be confronted to that and I'm more than ready like in maybe three, four, five, six months after releasing more tracks and more stuff to do DJ set. I'm really excited actually. Let's talk a little bit about your discography as Hollow in more depth. So your first ever record, well the one that I found anyway, was a track called A Door which you put out in 2018. Now despite it being your first track, the production values are incredibly high and it's such a warm and melodic R&B influence record. How did the track come about? How do you reflect on it now? Were there perhaps any nerves or anxieties that you had before you put it out? And are you as proud of it now as you were back then? Adore was not cathartic like any of my tracks, so there is no portrait of my feelings at this period. I actually kind of like this track, even though it's a track I made like maybe three years ago. I think that I needed the time, the right time to like it. And when you're a producer, most of the producer, I guess, don't like their track when they're releasing this track because they were thousand, maybe <laughs> hundred at least of hours on tracks that they are pulling out. So you don't like them when it's released. It's my case. Anyway, Adore, because it's been out and released since three years right now. I feel like it's a great track, but I'm listening to this track like it's not me who produced it. I got the, the recoil some ways to like this track. So that's funny. I listened to it like maybe four or five months ago and I didn't listen to it before that between the days it's been out and the few weeks after it's been released and five, six months ago. So I've been re-listening to it and I actually liked it. So I was surprised and I, I was kind of happy. That made my day, actually. You put out a couple of singles after this called Drowning and Eden, which you enlisted vocalist Celeste for. They have this really lovely journey on each one where they start off on a really slow sort of dreamy vibe for like 30 to 40 seconds. Then you bring in that R&B dance beat into it for the payoff for the listener. Eden has a wonderful guitar if you add in after the final bridge as well. How did you evolve your sound as hollow with these following tracks after a door and, and what importance do they have, if any, for you and your mental health? When I first started making music, I was searching for uh, a sauce, you know, uh, special things you do and it works because ton of the artists I was listening to were doing that in some ways with a, a really interesting but perceptible touch in their sound. So I was searching for this touch, this special sauce. And you can see that Droning, Spectre and Eden, for example, have a similar feeling and touch and sound design to it. When I was searching myself and I was working with the same sounds and just implementing one or two songs on each sounds, on each tracks, because that was a part of my life where I was experimenting, actually. And I was trying to find the sauce. And nowadays, I'm not thinking in, in this way anymore. And I feel like I've been making music during maybe eight, nine, ten years. I speaking about music on my computer, because I was making drum before. And, you know, you got reflex right now. I got habits, and that's my touch. And I don't have to think about a touch for, to have a touch. I don't know if you feel me on this one, but I feel that my habits and the way I'm working in, in my software is my touch right now. So I don't have to think about it anymore, and I don't have to make sounds that are similar all the time. 
because there is always a feeling that you can find, I think, and I hope so in all the music. But back in the days, yeah, when I look back to those tracks, for me, I love them because they made who I am today, but I feel that they were maybe too much similar, but they were needed to allow me to progress. That's how I would see them nowadays. That last point is a really great point, I think, how you reflect on needing them to be able to progress further in your journey, Arthur. After this, you put out a batch of singles called Spotlight, Skydive and Spectre, and then a remix of Crazy by Kabu. But it's safe to say that 2020 has been a bit of a breakthrough year for you. Before we get to your hit track, Something to Say, which was how I discovered you, you said to me off air that the previous single you put out called Counterfeit had some significance for you. Can you tell me a bit more about that and why that was for the listeners? That's following perfectly what we talked about just right before, because Counterfeit is for me my best track in the south that I thought I found with Hedan droning and this type of track. It, you know, it's got the house funk bounce, but it's what I wanted to do since the start. And Counterfeit allowed me to get my vision out finally and maybe then move on to something else. And I think that this is the track Counterfeit that allowed me to move on to something else, to another style of music, maybe, because I was satisfied with what I did in this special style. So I was able to go on something else and maybe explore something else. Counterfeit feels like I finished a boss in a game and I can move to the next boss. That's not my favorite track of myself. I'm not especially proud of that track, but I think that's one of the tracks that helps me the most to move on to another style of music and be comfortable with trying experimenting something else and changing my sounds, my sound design, my whole music sound box. That's the track that made me free, maybe from the future funk house music. Let's talk something to say now, and it's the reason we're talking right now. It's an absolute banger and definitely a new direction for you from like the smooth dance R&B records you were putting out previously into this melodic pulsing house record. Was that a natural step for you? What does that track mean to you and your mental health? And what has been the reaction to it? Something to say is a track that, unlike most of the track I'm making, is a track that I produced really quick. I was quite quick producing it. I think I did it in one day. And because that's understandable, because the track is not that huge. There's not a ton of elements in it. And that's actually a pretty simple track. A pretty simple house track. I think he had like, a great mood, maybe a great sound design, but I was not overthinking my production when making it. And I try to stay light and neat with my production on this track. It had, yeah, on my career, an impact that I was not seeing coming. And that's really, yeah, that's my breakthrough, that the track that made me sign today where I'm at. And it opened a ton of doors for me. That's the track I'm the most thankful for. Nowadays, because it opened me a ton of doors and I was really like not not overthinking my track when I made it. I was really like trusting myself. I'm putting this out and it works like I want. So even for a self-confidence type of stuff, it makes you want to not overthink your future track exactly the same way you didn't overthink the best track that works. So that makes me comfortable with my next release. And it's not the most produced one that will work best, maybe. And that's why I'm also thankful for this track. I've got to talk about your last single that you put out, which was a remix of Great Friend Event, previous Behind the Decks guest, Jar Funk single, The Baddest. How did you give your own unique spin on that? What's your relationship with Lockie like? And maybe how do you collaborate with other producers that you may admire in the scene as well? 
my manager a contact with uh, Jafunk. Actually, they released under my manager's label, the label is working for, the release of Jafunk, the baddest. My manager directly asked me, do you want to remix it? Because I love Jafunk, he's one of the producers that also made who I am. The future funk style of music, I was really inspired by, by him. He pulled out Splice Pack that are, for me, the best Splice Pack ever. And I think a producer I really respect. So when my manager asked to remix uh, his track, The Baddest, I was already okay even before he asked me. I didn't have a, a conversation with Jaffan during the process, no feedback or all that stuff. That's maybe the thing I, I'm the most sad about in the process of that remix because I like to have a conversation with people I'm re remixing track for. But that's okay. And I think we, we're going to have opportunity to talk soon and all that stuff. So that's okay. And I hope he was proud of this remix I made for him because I, I tried also to be in the same like Future Funk South. That was a, a throwback for me because before this track, I was working on ton of other stuff like in trap music. I was producing ton of, of other style. And when this remix for Jafunk has been proposed to me, I've been back to my roots, the Future Funk House music. So that was a great opportunity to me to yeah come back to something else that I like. And that remix went well. And I'm pretty happy with the results. This have the funk touch that I wanted. When we spoke off air, Arthur, you were keen to talk about both the positives and negatives you've experienced in the music industry so far. So let's talk the positives first. There's a lot of talk amongst the producer community and artist community generally about staying independent and being wary of major labels, as some have famously been exploited in pretty big stories over the decades, let alone the last few years. However, that's not your perspective on it, is it? No, I feel like when you sign to a major label deal, you're a partner of this label. I feel like artists most of the time, including me, tend to be hardly seeing themselves as a business person, as a businessman. We see ourselves all the time as artists and kind people that are not in business thing, in deal things, uh, in contract thing. We hate this type of stuff. We're not even reading the full contract most of the time. I feel that it's a mistake we're all doing less or more. And that's the mistake I'm trying not to do. And that's the way it shaped my vision nowadays is trying to be more a business person than you actually are and see yourself as a partner of this major label. And if you're not okay with what they're proposing you in the deal, just don't accept it. They're sometimes proposing like to have 10%, 10 points on your release, which is pretty low compared to what you could have as an independent, but they're also proposing you a ton of ways to exploit your track with potentially uh, clips, money put in the in your profile, actually. So it's like not liking the banks when they're allowing you to have a, a credit. It's your choice. You know, you sign that credit and after you got a percentage, you got to put back in the bank and that's it, you know. And I see it the same way for major label and this person. We all know the downsides of major label nowadays. It's our time now to be bold on our choices and maybe be helped by other people, be aware of what is a major label and how they're working. But I feel like even on YouTube, there's a ton of videos speaking about that nowadays. And I feel that it's our role nowadays as a music producer 
to be business people and not fall in the same trap as music producers fall into and even artists of all categories fell into in the past. And we got the, the right amount of experience nowadays, the right amount of bad stories with major label to be aware and be really be able to feel when there's a shady thing going on in a deal and all that stuff and be aware of what you accept when you accept a major deal. Let's talk the dark side now, because there was one story you told me off air that really opened my eyes and it involved you not working with a major label, but working with a producer that was a bit bigger than you in terms of size and listener numbers, I guess. Can you tell the listeners about this and you can go into as much or as little detail as you want and the impact that that event had on your mental health? Yeah, back in the days, I had opportunity to work with a, a producer who was bigger than me and I was really liking him. I was so happy and proud when he contacted me to do a collaboration. We spoke together, we had big plans. And when we started making music together, he asked me for a FL Studio file, took that file. I think I even maybe sent to him two or three FL Studio files. And FL Studio files for the non-musician people is the music file where we making music in. So there is basically all our process and all our tools. The way we're making music is all written, wrote in that. That's a really important file. And I think I sent like two or three files to this producer. And when he had these files, he never contacted me after. And he like cut all the bridges between him and me. Basically, yeah, it was like complimenting my wife producing music. He was asking me a ton of things on how you do with your percussion, how you put this in stereo, how you compress this. And maybe we could start by collaborating. If you send me uh, the FL Studio file of this track. So I, I was like, okay. I was not collaborating really often with producers. I was confident in everything in life. I was kind of naive, in fact. So yeah, that experience basically maybe allowed me to understand that Music is a business. I think that's the same thing as what I said with the major deals. There is the human part in every situation where you want to be friendly with people, you want to talk, have great conversation and build friendship and good relationship with people. And there is another side because of money, because of maybe the capitalist side of it, where everybody want to be better than everybody. Everybody want to make money. I think maybe this producer just wanted to get those little tips that I was using in my production to be a bit better on his side. But he could have just asked me uh, instead of being shady uh, and doing a robbery like that. Yeah, maybe right now I'm more, I got less confidence, no, no self-confidence, but I got less confidence in maybe producer and in the music industry. And for example, right now with my teams, whenever I make a music, even if we want to send it or not, we always putting it in the SASEM, which is a the French company that is taking care of protecting juridically our music. So whenever I got a demo, I'm always protecting my demo right after I make it. Because, you know, I'm less confident in the music industry and free sharing, collaborating all together and being happy and all that stuff. So I tend to be more cautious in my music process nowadays, thanks to this story. Let's reflect on your music journey now, Arthur. In these last two to three years, you've been producing music as a fully-fledged artist, but you did tell me off-air that you see yourself as a craftsman, more like an engineer, if that makes sense, rather than an artist in the general terms. How do you think you've evolved as opposed to where you were five years ago to now? And what has producing, performing, playing instruments taught you about yourself, do you think? Uh, I think that 
like feelings and emotions are part of the music you're making and they are really important in the process of making music but overall i feel like there is just like a simple example chord progression i feel like in chord progression you can easily learn the theory the theory and be able to make a sad chord progression a monotonous chord progression a happy chord progression and i think that all this stuff is a bit mathematical in the way a majority of producers approach it nowadays. When they are in studio with someone that want to do a sad music, they know the right minor chords. There is a ton of potential minor chords that they can do to make that sad music. And overall, I feel like music on a larger scale is working like that for me. I feel like you got to know uh, technically the mechanics behind making music like a craftsman. At the end of the day, it's what making you a great or not producer, in my opinion, is know the mechanics, know what's going on behind making music and maybe not just make music with just the feelings and having a good moment. When you want to be professional, in my personal experience, that there is a moment where you got to learn things from professional and really often speaking about the mechanics, the compression, how you got to do to make that track sounds great. And I think that if there is way more than just emotion and feelings when you creating music it's not just vibing along a track for me right now it's not even about overthink your track it's just being professional i feel uh, and being able to for example when you're in studio i'm saying that for that special example when you're in, in the studio and someone asks you to make a sad track if you're not sad at the moment how can you do to make that sad track you gotta know what's behind that sad track and it's not only about chord progression it's about the tempo about the drums you're putting about the sound design and all that stuff i feel like once you become professional you gotta be able to create the emotion even if you're not feeling this at the moment and that's why i think that music producer is also about being a craftsman and as a final question arthur i'm always keen on behind the decks to smash the myth of the superstar dj or producer and make sure that everyone knows that the majority of djs and producers are just normal people with everyday emotions and feelings and issues like everyone else what are some of the realities of being a producer that people might not see about your life and has it ever impacted on your life positively or negatively the first problem is coffee <laughs> i feel like i'm drinking too much coffee actually nowadays i'd like to smash a myth but i don't know for example i hate to see uh, instagram producer desks with the neons the lights the little things plants everywhere a ton of analogic scenes i got analogic scenes on my side too and i'm practically never using them and i feel like sometimes the myth of the producers with too much gears around him tons of like 17 cents around him maybe 100 1050 100 i don't know what i don't know how much it costs but like mix engineer stables desks i feel like sometimes it's a bit too much uh, comparing to what we need nowadays to make music for me that's a bit a myth i often see like people producing music in studios with their computer on the mixing desk i feel like they're never using this desk they're always mixing in the box with their tools on their computer yeah, I think that the gears everywhere is a myth for me. For most of the producers, except like maybe Enzimer and uh, Mac Dean, I feel like for most of producers, it's a bit of a myth. And just for the Instagram picture.
we've talked all about hollow and your producing journey let's go behind the decks and talk about your own journey in a bit more detail arthur so firstly and i ask all my guests this question first tell me a bit about your early life in france maybe your childhood and teenagers and were there any early mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint looking back who's the arthur we meet here I feel like my early music journey was not that much into trouble, into mental health problems and all that stuff. When I was a child, I was pretty at ease with life in general, and I had no mental health problem. I grew up in France with good parents and a good situation. I had no troubles with having brothers and sisters and being like, I'm not the most loved child of my family or whatever like that. So I was a really happy kid and I'm still an happy person nowadays that's maybe something i'm really grateful for is having a stable life and being able to craft things without being disturbing with the context and the things going on over me i've been lucky one big thing you wanted to talk about in this part of the pod arth is your lived experience of derealization now i've had previous guests talk about their experience of depersonalization which you've said has some similarities to it but this is also something I'd never heard of before. Why don't you define it for the listeners who don't know what it is and then tell me how it affects you in your day-to-day life? The realization, the personalization are actually caused, I guess, by the same things. I'm not a psychologue, so I'm not going to be in depth into how it's caused and basically the whole mechanism around that. But the realization is basically a feeling of being behind a glass, of being out of reality, being in your own world with something in front of your eyes, and feeling less things, being overall less aware of reality. And there is also a ton of symptoms beside that. For example, having less memory, less intense souvenirs and things like that. Maybe you're tired all the time and you're not actually tired biologically, but you feel in a mood where you're always tired all the time. And you're basically out of this world. That's how I would describe it. And depersonalization is way more like out of your body if I can make difference between this stuff. Like in the personalization, I don't have this personalization, so I don't know exactly how it feels like, but I read that it feels like you are out of your body and your body isn't you. So when you look at your arms, for example, you feel like it's not your arms and things like that. I'm not feeling these things, thankfully. I feel like I'm out of my body and like there really isn't that much true and that not that much intense. And that's a really sad thing to live with. But over time, you deal with it and you start feeling this less and less and less and less and you start being comfortable with it. Along this journey of derealization, if you could say what have been some of the more difficult moments living with it and maybe what have been some of the more positive moments where you've gotten control of it or you've developed some tools to deal with it better? Mm, the worst moment is the beginning when it appeared to me that was maybe six months ago seven months ago i don't know and it's a, an illness that never stop it's not something that goes by cycles and you feel in it this day and the day after you stop to feel in it it's something that stays along the line and it's pretty stable so during those six months i never stopped to feel this but the worst days were at first because at the beginning of my journey with derealization, I was not aware that it was derealization and my doctors neither. So I I did a ton of tests, ERM. At first we thought that was cerebral. I, I had some tumors or problem in my brain. So that was scary 
basically at the beginning you feel ton of stuff going on it's you got a really weird perception of life that triggered herself super fast you don't see the frontier before you feel it and after you feel it so it just happened one day and it starts and you don't know why it starts and you feel like you heal the worst days are the first because you don't know what you got and that's really 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 making grow up your anxiety and you're really anxious basically on the first days on the first month before the diagnosis is made on your case when we spoke off air you told me that you've not been the only producer to experience and live with this condition have you met any other producers who live with it too and has that helped you in knowing that you're not alone in living with it and maybe getting some tips or tools off them to help you feel better about it i don't know any special producer's name right now like that but i know that it's a overall in the population it's a common illness because there is like i feel like one person of the population got the realization for most of them it's not something chronical it's not something that stays but it can just be a a crisis or by period but i got a friend that had the realization and he went through he's feeling better right now and he helped me with ton of advice and conversation that made me feel better and made me feel overall more at ease with this, this illness if i had to give some advices that would be first i feel that the most important thing is knowing that you're not alone and maybe read some testimony and comments from other people who have the realization the moment you start to feel like you're not alone and there's people feeling exactly the same thing as you are is an amazing moment it has been a, an astonishing moment for me because it made me more aware of what i had on my own because i wasn't able to put the exact words on what i was feeling before and when you read those things you exactly know what you got and it's you directly know it you know that you got the realization the moment you read people explaining all the what's their perception of life i think for me this has been the most important moment in my illness and in my mental health problem with this illness when i read the testimony of people with it i'd say that yeah that's a thing really important read the testimony of people what the realization maybe another thing is being always always occupied with some stuff because the moment you get silence in your head the moment you're doing nothing it's going to be a bad day for example on my side i got a really really detailed planning on my day to day life and it's allowing me to live perfectly with this illness and the moment i'm doing nothing like maybe at night before sleeping i feel it back because i'm not doing anything and it goes back and slap me but most of the days i'm feeling fine thanks to having a planning i'd say that meditation helps because even though it's a stable illness you got moments where you feel it more than at some other moments we cannot like call that a crisis but it happens a bit in this way so meditating when something like that happen when a crisis when you got a, a difficult moment with the illness something that helped me a lot just even breathing slowly and going back to normal like in your mental process and just like slowing things it's going to help you most of the time i feel like And just as a final question Arthur you said to me off air that you had this juxtaposition between going from a bedroom producer making records to suddenly having record label deals on the table and sort of big decisions that you were having to make and you said to me it might have contributed to this derealization or been a trigger could you tell me what you meant by that mm, I've been traveling through Italia with my girlfriend and at the same moment I had those first deal on the table and that was maybe too much going on in the same time for me you don't know what the landscape is you don't know where you are 
There is no one speaking your language or speaking Italian, and you got nothing to hang on in your life, basically. That's what I think triggered my derealization. For most people, it's something like post-traumatic, where you got a car crash or things like that. But on my side, I was like having no checkpoint, like no marker of my life, nothing to hang on, no thing to be comfortable with. I was basically lost in something I didn't know. I quit my school, so I had nothing in my life that was like the day before, and it happens really quick. I think that's why this triggered my derealization. And I'm starting to be comfortable with my day-to-day life, um, start having habits right now, and basically be more like understanding what's going on in your life. Maybe uh, it's what happens to me right now. I'm understanding what's happening in my life way more than I was before. And that's the perfect process to start a heal, uh, maybe for me. Our final topic of conversation, Arthur, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests at some point, is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, and you can include or exclude the general world circumstances we are living in at the time of recording, but how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? The past days have been great days for me. I'm starting producing music again. I'm starting living better. I got better sleep cycles. Tiny things like that are things that help me. I got a planning that I'm following day to day with a lot of attention. I try to not put anything out of my planning, just do what's wrote on this planning or this Google agenda every time. So I'm starting feeling better. I'm not going to do that my whole life, but for the moment, that's the thing that helped me. So I'm staying on that habit. Overall, yeah, I feel better. Even if it's cold outside, I'm running. I got determination. I got more brave behaviors, I feel this week and the past week so i'm pretty happy right now and i and i hope he's going to stay a bit longer what age do you think you were when you first realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health do you think that's a deep question (laughs) i feel like i had those type of question maybe when i was eight nine i started to be uh, scared of dying and all that type of metaphysical and I had those questions too about my mental health starting to realize that not everything was related to your body and that your mental mood is really important in your life but that's really with the realization uh, that I understood this stuff too because with the realization you basically think at first that it's a body thing that you got a problem somewhere on your body I'm someone really rational and derealization helps me to be less rational and be more aware of like there's things that you don't control, like your mind is doing a lot to your body and it's not just like take antibiotic and everything's going to be good and great. There's something sometimes that you got to accept and deal with it even if it's abstract and you cannot put your hand on it and understand perfectly what phenomenon is going on, what thing is going on in your mind. And I accepted that really recently, I guess. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? How did it go? And looking back, did it feel like a big moment in your life and a big weight had been lifted? Or did it feel like something quite normal and insignificant? I'm someone really shy when it comes to mental health. That's maybe an habit that I got because I'm a unique child too in my family. But yeah, I'm not speaking that much about these things with people. I should, but I'm not doing this. But the first really interesting talks that I had with mental health, like deep talks about my problems and the way I feel, 
is I think with my girlfriend because I feel like she's really able to understand me and there's nothing I'm ashamed to speak about with her. The thing for me that is important when I'm talking about this subject is that I gotta know that if I'm doing mistakes when I'm speaking, if I'm doing teeny errors, if I'm saying things that are not exact, it's not going to be a problem afterwards. And I can say basically whatever I want and make sure that it's not going to hurt anyone. And Because uh, sometimes those type of conversation, when you say you're not at ease in an environment, for example, it's kind of hurting for the people that are living with you in the same environment, for example. Like, I feel like overall mental health problem, that's something easy to speak about. And I think that the best thing is maybe to speak about this problem with person that you don't know at all. That's why there's still a lot of pe people doing that. That's why there is in the Catholic religion, for example, a confessional, because you speak with a priest that you don't know that much and you can say all your problem to him and you're sure that it's not going to have an impact on your life afterwards. Uh, going to a psychologist is basically the same thing. You're speaking with someone that you don't know and you'll never know. And that's pretty cool to speak about your problem with someone that you don't know. There is no impact on your future life. But with my girlfriend, I got a bit this type of feeling because she know me. She's okay with me making mistakes and me being weak sometimes. And I can be who I want to be with her and speak about those complex subjects and sometimes controversial subjects. But yeah, basically my girlfriend is, is my my priest at the confessional in some ways. Sometimes, even if I try not to put too much on her shoulders. Toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast, Arthur. And it's one we try and break down a lot, hopefully in a few more years and a few more pods. Masculinity won't be stigmatized and people won't generalize it. And positive masculinity will just be masculinity. What would you define as toxic masculinity? And what examples of it have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners? Quite okay with the fact that positive masculinity is actually masculinity. Because the way I learned masculinity in my own path for life with my parents, especially my father, for example, hasn't ever been toxic. For example, my father helped me to learn uh, to be competitive, to do things that you want. But he never shamed me, he never made fun of me, he never made me bad about not being enough great sometimes. He just pushed me to be better, but he wasn't like ever making fun of me being not the best, being the second, being the third. And I think that's a part of great masculinity is always push yourself to do better things, but take your time and don't put pressure if you're not the first. Don't put pressure if you're not the best in what you're doing. And overall, my father, for example, was my figure of the masculinity. And he was not someone with a loud voice. He's someone a bit shy sometimes. He didn't want to take all the space in the room. So I think I had good example of masculinity. And I never been the kids that, I don't know, doing too much because he's not confident. At the end of the day, it's just a question of confidence. I feel like when you're not confident in yourself, you tend to do too much and too much masculinity, you're doing too much with your cars, you're putting too much money everywhere. All these things are linked at the end of the day. It's just a question of being at ease. And because my father and my mother and my friends overall make me a person that is easy with his life and without too much pressure, I feel like I wasn't someone that had to prove ton of things to the world all the time with my masculinity, I take too much room, being uh, violent, being, uh, I don't know, and yeah, it's just a question of accepting everything, accepting people as they are. And I think once we do that, there's not that much problem. For example, I did my nails. You no, know, I got I got my nails done. And that's the thing that is not part of the masculinity. 
that's because of the lockdown too, because I got no no one to see. I'm not at school every day. There's not 70 people, excuse me, saying me that it's ugly and all that stuff. <laughs> so I can um, I can do it. But I would say to everybody, if you want to train yourself uh, with your masculinity and all that stuff, maybe like do your nails in black for one day or two day, three days, and just accept yourself with your nails. That would be a funny thing. <laughs> that would be my advice to people: do your nails. Why do you think historically men have struggled to express how they're feeling about their mental health or feelings in general, Arthur? Has society taught us that it's not been okay for us in the past to show vulnerability or have we as men shamed ourselves and done it to ourselves, do you think? I think the model we're living in, like the society we're living in, is forcing us to sometimes being too much in masculinity and toxic masculinity. So I think that overall it's society that is pushing us like that because there's a ton of things that are independent of human beings. Like We created that without having the intention to create that. And I feel like it's here nowadays. No one like predicted it. And that's the plan of no one or no company to create a world where there's too much toxic masculinity. So that just the society things that we built as human beings without knowing it. And nowadays it's here and we got to fix this stuff but i don't feel like it's us that are born with that maybe there's like testosterone and things like that but if you're educated correctly for most people except people that got too much like too much testosterone going on in their body like it's an illness i feel like you can control that you can be a an educated person and you can be like gentle and positive and don't have a masculinity that is toxic so yeah i think that's a society thing and we don't have to blame anybody for it nowadays, except maybe people that are still toxic and that are maybe are defending this vision of what is masculinity. But except that, like there is no fight to create against any person, any male. It's just a question of education at the end of the day. And like, we don't have equal chances when it comes to education. So it's just a question to like, maybe educate in schools people to what is masculinity, what is being a girl, what is being uh, a male. I think that maybe could be important. I'm scared of these lessons being corny, but maybe it's, if it's well-made, it could have a ton of people. And just finally, Arthur, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? Except doing your nails. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a personal path, a personal uh, experience. There is no like absolute advice that you can give to people. It's all about who you are. And at the end of the day, I think that's my final answer. Uh, it's that there is nothing absolute. We got to accept that people are following different paths of different feelings, different ambitions. And don't start to do a, a massive competition with all men yeah, in the same area now, like there is no absolute advices. There is only like relative to the person I'm speaking with, I guess, advices. We all have different problems and we all are different. And accepting difference is maybe recognizing them. And the first thing would be not me giving an advice to every man because I don't have any solution first. And I don't think I would be really humble on that subject, honestly. I don't really have an answer on anything except the fact that, yeah, every man is different. And every man has different answer when it comes to masculinity and accept it and maybe deal with it on a daily basis. Well, I think we have come to the end of this episode of Behind the Decks. 
I want to say a big thank you to Arthur for being my special guest on this episode and letting me go behind the decks with him. And I'll put some links to where you can follow Hollow on social media and stream his music in the description of the pod. As always, thanks to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, please, 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 if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, write us a review, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or support our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk and it's vent spelt V-E-N-T and then H-E-L-P-U-K. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks whenever it's coming. And remember, it's always okay to vent. It's true.